Welcome to UQ Leaders. LeadHERS is a UQ confidence building incubator for female identifying students, staff, and alumni. In this podcast, you can listen to some of the wonderful speakers that have been part of our program in 2020. We hope you enjoy this podcast. If you want to know more about our UQ LeadHERS program, please visit our website, ventures.uq.edu. In this episode of LeadHurst Spring 2020, our guest speakers Dr. Jessica Gallagher and Mrs. Moira Ware talk with LeadHurst manager and host Cayetana Martinez about servant leadership. The recording starts a few minutes into Moira's introduction, where she's talking about her career over the years. We hope you enjoy this wonderful and honest conversation with two amazing Australian female leaders. Thank you for listening. I'm also a ministerial appointment to the South Australian Entrepreneurship Advisory Board. And um, as you said in your opening remark, Kadiana, the, um, I'm the founder of Chooks SA, which is an online uh, Facebook community. Uh, there's about 3,000 people in it, mostly South Australians and mostly women, but we're very welcome to have others. And I've just founded a year ago um, a co-op called the Hen House Cooperative, which is focusing on closing the gender investment gap. I'm also a director of Ethical Fields, which is um, a co-op approach to regional um, regeneration, farming, and also community wealth building. So I work with their, those guys who were just a delight, uh, wonderful. And um, I uh, also have opportunities to support in an advisory role, um, Collaboration for Impact, which is a national uh, intermediary in the social and community services space and also to SHEO, which is a global um, global organisation community, which is working towards uh, a $1 billion perpetual investment fund uh, to close the gender gap. And we're, we're basically trying to support female founders to tick off the world's to-do list. So it's quite um, a broad portfolio, if you like, but it's focused and uh, could be just kind of summed up that my main thing is that I really want to disrupt the patriarchy. I want to change the systems that aren't working for all of us. And that doesn't mean helping us fit into those systems. It usually means creating new ones. So that's what, what's motivating me. And that's the way I'm doing things right now. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for the introduction. And I really like the uh, last sentence that you just said about sometimes the system needs to be changed completely, right? So it's not about fitting in the system, but creating new ones. And I think I wanna believe that's part of what we try to do here as well. So thank you for the introduction. It was great to know more about you. And wow, three career, three degrees and four children before 30. That's an incredible achievement. Um, and I would like to invite now Jessica Gallagher to introduce herself as well. Thanks, Kaitana. I feel like there's um, a big shoes to follow um, in terms of introductions, but I, I will do my best to give you a bit of an overview of, of my leadership journey to date. Um, Kaitana asked me to point out a couple of the, the key milestones, so I'm looking forward to sharing those with you, and, and, uh, and I don't think that they're necessary traditional ones either. Um, 
But uh, yeah, so my name's Jess Gallagher. I'm the Pro Vice Chancellor of Global Engagement and Entrepreneurship here at the University of Queensland. Um, it's a role that I was appointed into just in January this year. Um, and I'm sure that you can imagine that my, my plan for the role uh, looks and feels a little differently than I had thought on the outset uh, with COVID challenges uh, and the need to really fundamentally change the way that we look at our, our global programs, uh, our work with global partners and continuing to navigate the restrictions that have come about because of COVID-19, but also um, some of the wonderful joys of geopolitics that we have in our region and beyond. So I might flip back to that as part of some of the conversation today, but someone had told me that I would be in this position when I was a 16 year old year 12 student looking at what her future might look like. I would never have believed them. When I was um, finishing high school in Harvey Bay, which is about four hours from Brisbane in a, in a little regional senior college, um, there were lots of conversations about what I might want to do when I grew up, when I'm still trying to work out what I want to do when I grow up, but this isn't a bad one. Um, all I knew was that I, I really, um, I like to write and I really liked languages. And so on the basis of that, I decided to um, enroll in a Bachelor of Arts uh, and I studied German and Russian, as you do. Uh, and my other major was journalism. And uh, at the time, my, my parents thought that I was crazy. My friends thought that I was crazy. Everybody told me that I should be pursuing something like law or a business, something where there was a more defined career path. But I was pretty determined um, that this is what I wanted to do. And so this is what I decided to do. Um, but I got to university uh, and I was only 17 in my first year of university. So I was quite, quite young, I guess, um, now. And found that the first year of university was a real struggle. It wasn't really, I was sort of out of home for the first time. I, I didn't really, had gone from being, which maybe some of you have experienced that sort of big, big fish in a small pond to a very, very, very tiny tadpole in a massive ocean, or at least it felt. And so after my first year of study, I decided that actually university really wasn't for me, um, which we all still laugh at now across my family because now I really never want to leave universities. I love them so much. Um, but really thought it wasn't for me. So I was going to take myself off and go and travel the world. And so I decided that I would start in Germany. And so I worked as a nanny. I was supposed to be there for six months and then I was going to go and do other things or return home and find a, a real job. But I loved it so much that um, my six months extended to a year. And then from that, I actually enrolled myself into a university um, in Germany. And that was before a lot of the student exchange programs that we see now. So there wasn't that kind of infrastructure that sat around it where you could actually just, you know, go and enroll through the university and go on exchange. I had to sort of do it all by myself. And so um, I think that that was really important in terms of um, my reliance on my own ability and trust in my own judgment um, and this sort of, you know, fierce determination that no matter what happened or no matter what I did somehow or another, I would make it work out. Um, and so I spent a couple of years then studying in Germany before I realised that the, um, it was probably going to take me quite a long time to finish my degree over there because the structure of higher education is quite different. So I came back um, to UQ to, to finish my um, undergraduate studies. Uh, only then in my final semester of my undergraduate year to fall pregnant with twins. So I, I haven't got Moira's great story of, you know, four under 30, but I did do two at once. So surely that gets me some kind of brownie points. So 
So um, that was not that's not what I had expected. Um, that wasn't really on the on the life plan to do list. Um, but uh, I, I was so my final year, final semester of third year, um, I was found pregnant with the with my twin boys who are now um, 20 years old. Uh, and at the time, um, someone had said to me, well, you know, have you thought about honours? And I hadn't really given it much thought, but I thought, well, you know, that this is, I enjoyed writing. Um, I, I, there were lots of interesting projects that I was interested in doing. And so I thought, well, this will be a good shot. So I, so I decided to, to give that a go. Um, fast forward um, some time, I, I was um, awarded a PhD scholarship, which I did in comparative cultural studies. Um, because I've always been really interested in the ways with which people and communities um, from different cultural backgrounds come together and to live and work together. And so that was really the area broadly around uh, the premise behind my PhD thesis, but taking into consideration uh, sort of cult cultural representation in that space. Um, it became quite clear probably about halfway through my PhD that I didn't know that I was going to be a traditional academic. It was a bit too lonely for me. In the um, humanities, you're often sort of left alone to your own devices. And I, and I did really like working as part of a team, which again, I think was sort of an important kind of um, a light bulb moment for me insofar as that I, I really, really enjoy the team environment. I, I thrive off the kind of creativity of, of others. And so I started to look for opportunities where I would be able to do that. Um, and so one of my first paid gigs was actually with the Brisbane International Film Festival where um, I actually was uh, responsible for leading a group of volunteers who were supporting the judging panels. Uh, and it was a fantastic opportunity. Learned so much about, again, working with different cultures, different people, understanding different motivations, because when you're working with volunteers, of course, they don't have to be there. And so um, keeping everybody to task and motivating people for the same goal was a really interesting experience um, as part of that position. From there, um, I actually um, worked for um, uh, UQ Sport, which was separate from the University of Queensland at the time around this international games, where again, it was drawing people from all different uh, countries to UQ um, for this sort of larger sporting and cultural event, uh, which was again, a fantastic opportunity, um, working with all different people, event managing. Uh, and then I got a job with UQ. So I was working as the um, domestic uh, student recruitment manager. So I used to travel to high schools across the state and, and beyond to actually talk to prospective students about opportunities to study in, in higher education. Um, and it was through that, I guess, that I really you know, love working with students. I was fortunate that I was able to continue to lecture at the same time. So I've lectured in German language and cinema studies, as well as cultural studies uh, for more than, well, probably two decades now, um, which is a long time. Um, so I was able to combine sort of the academic sort of interest that I had with um, work in the professional stream. Uh, and then I um, really just took advantage of opportunities as they presented. So um, from student recruitment, I had an opportunity to head up a new team within the graduate school, working with PhD students. Uh, then an opportunity to restructure our student experience office at the time, which was the UQ Advantage office, which is now Student Employability Centre, uh, which was a great opportunity again to, to um, work with different teams from across the university and bring people together. And then I moved into the international portfolio um, and was the deputy director of global engagement uh, 
from there, uh, global engagement turned into global engagement entrepreneurship, and this year also included international development. Um, and so it's uh, it's been an incredible, I think I've been at UQ now for about 14 years, uh, which is unbelievable to me. Uh, and the opportunities that I've had um, have been incredible, but I often wake up in the morning and feel like I need to pinch myself because I really do feel like I am one of the luckiest girls in the world with one of the best jobs in the world, uh, which maybe we'll be able to unpack a little bit further. But then um, also because of that, um, I feel a really strong need to give back and contribute. Uh, and so I am on the board of a, a not-for-profit um, Kokoda Track Foundation, which uh, looks at how we improve the livelihoods and prosperities of people in Papua New Guinea. Um, I was on the board of um, Scope Global with Moira for a number of years uh, and thoroughly enjoyed that opportunity to contribute to a number of international development programs. I'm also on the advisory board of the Queensland AI Hub, which is looking at how we can um, encourage more people to engage with AI across all sectors. Uh, and I'm an activator with uh, CEO. So just as Moira said uh, that sometimes we need to break those systems and rebuild them. I'm a strong believer of, of that very much. And so my passions are very much around the power of education um, and making that available to as many people as possible, um, but also to support women as they look at backing in leadership roles. I think that we've come a long way, um, but we have a long way to go. And I missed out a couple of additional milestones. So in addition to my twin sons who are 20, I have two little girls. Uh, one who's 11 and one who's three, and they keep me very honest in terms of um, their expectations and, and what their priorities in life should be. So uh, very, very keen um, and, and uh, share Kayetana's passion for this particular program. And so far as I'd really love to see that every female student across UQ has access to leaders, um, but then also how do we encourage um, our, our male colleagues to also engage uh, with some of these important discussions as well. So I've gone for way too long, Kaitana. please forgive me. <laughs> that's okay, that's wonderful. And doesn't matter how many times I hear you introducing yourself, there is always something new <laughs> that I learned about you. Like the Russian component, I miss that. <laughs> I knew about the German, but the Russian was new to me. <laughs> So it's, it's wonderful as always to hear about your career and something that I realized as you were talking is that you must be one of the few professionals at the university that has both profiles at the same time, right? Like the academic and the professional kind of pathway both at the same time and maintaining both um, as you progress in your career and that must keep must give you a wonderful perspective of both sides. So I, I think that's wonderful and definitely am. A unique position to be in. Um, so as you can see, ladies, the caliber of <laughs> the speakers today is amazing and we are again really thankful and really lucky to have you here today. And what I would like to move into next is um, on those 10 principles of servant leadership. And hopefully that give us an opportunity to keep unpacking your professional careers and, and to keep talking about leadership and how you understand leadership and how you actually um, put in place every, every day while managing your teams. You both raised uh, a point that I think is really important for most of the participants here today, that is actually leadership has nothing to do with authority or having a role, right? And uh, 
you said that when you were working um, dealing with volunteers or managing group of volunteers or even when you were seven with your <laughs> sister group <laughs> that you actually got to practice those skills and learn the most about leadership and I think that's very important because a lot of our participants here today maybe they are not in a position yet where they have that formal authority but they definitely part of um, a sports team or a group or a community or a volunteering group where they can practice those skills and and become a, a good leader motivating those people so I thought that was really important <clears throat> Okay, so moving into the principles of servant leadership, I decided to group them in groups of three, so you can see what's coming, <laughs> maybe if you even want to link up a couple or, or think about the next as we go, I thought that would make it easier. Um, but as, as you will see, the, the 10 principles of servant leadership are core skills that I don't like to call soft skills, because I don't think there is any anything soft about listening or empathy or, or healing but that those skills that have to do with taking care of one another and really being able to understand who who is that person in front of us and the first principle of several leadership it's all about listening and it focuses on that ability of just actually listen when someone is talking and not just waiting for your turn to talk or just thinking about the response as the other person is um is talking but to make your team member feel valued and listened to and seen um before you come up with a plan or or, or answer whatever your team member um has to say and i i know and i imagine that as you progress in your career and you have larger teams and more and more people uh, emailing to you or talking to you it must be hard to to keep that skill um um, but I, I wanted to ask you if you can provide an example, and I, I may ask Moira first, uh, if you could ask a, a, provide an example of how you practice this skill with your team in your, in, in your daily life. Thank you, beautiful question. Um, I think there's a few things. Firstly, there is a practice called deep listening, where you just mm -hmm. listen, like for, and you suspend everything, and it's just a one-on-one, -on -one, really deep listening to the other person, not interrupting, not asking questions, just giving your full attention. And um, I use that a lot. And I also use it in um, environments where we take it in turns to do that for one another before you come to decision about anything. And in, in doing that, you're really, um, it's not just being respectful for what's being um, said, but it's also um, giving yourself some respect too, to make sure you're taking in all the information that's, that the other person wants to give you, rather mm -hmm. than you, um, so you can kind of check your assumptions at the door. The other thing I'd just say on this is that I've been really trying to practice for many decades now, um, the practice of listening, not just to the words, but to the behaviours and to the mm -hmm. tone and, and the physical expression of that. and um, and also to listen to the environment. So, um, you know, the planet's calling out for an enormous amount of help right now with climate change. And we, we need to listen, not just to um, people, but when we're quite often involved when in leadership in making decisions that are beyond 
the interest of individuals. They're um, often around the interests of a whole community or indeed a place. And that means that we need to listen deeply, not just to the words, but also of people. We also need to pay attention to the data and listen to the data and listen to the environment that it's in. There's a beautiful um, piece of work that was done in a community in New Zealand where there was quite a significant amount of poverty, intergenerational poverty and violence. And when all the children were asked what they wanted to um, have as a measure of things getting better, obviously they said things like their own safety, but they also realised that the health of their region was connected to how many Kiwis were in the community, like how many birds were actually flying around. And so they used, this, they used the sound, how often they would hear that before they started school as a metric and started to use that as a way of noticing how healthy the community was. And while we don't often think about listening beyond ourselves or beyond our immediate ears, um, I'm really trying to encourage others and encourage myself to, to listen deeply to all that's going on, not just to what I can see and hear, because I'm still limited in my own seeing and hearing. Um, I will miss things. And so it's important to get different perspectives. And that's what I value in, in, from a servant leadership point of view. It's really important to hear a range of perspectives and not just the ones that are gonna reinforce your worldview. Mm. Yeah, really good point. And can I ask you, you mentioned about leaving your assumptions at the door, right? Which is what we all try to do, not, not to be biased, not to be uh, limited what we, be, what we believe, but we also understand that's a very hard thing to do and you have to be incredibly self-aware um, to do that. Can I ask you, you have any specific strategy or, tip that you do to notice that in yourself and to kind of park it <laughs> as you notice it happening? Yeah, I, I often ask a question like who's missing or what's missing mm -hmm. um, and then that just leaves, um, it means that other people can also share the responsibility of noticing what I might not have noticed. Mm. So there's that and the other sort of technique that I generally use is to try and meet the person with what they're giving me rather than what I'm bringing in. Mm -hmm. So um, paying attention to their, the, as much of them as being a whole person as possible, not just the, you know, the person who's delivering me some news. The, the reality is we're all people who live in other contexts. You know, mm -hmm. we're sons, we're daughters, we're aunties, we're grandmas, we're um, the lady next door, we're the, you know, the friend the sister we are all different we're not just one thing and that's true for the person we're listening to as well mm -hmm. and right now we're all people living through an international global pandemic and that's going to bring a different range of ways people are experiencing that too so mm -hmm. i don't have a foolproof technique but i generally ask myself what's missing or who's missing mm -hmm. yeah that's wonderful thank you um and jessica would you like to go next yeah, so I think, um, I mean, just to add some of the points that Maura made, it is, um, it's an interesting one, the listening one, and one where I'd say that it's still an area of development for me, in so far as um, I think most people that are in my teams would probably say that I can get quite enthusiastic about topics, and so in doing so, I often uh, talk a lot and, you know, can become quite sort of vocal about activities, and so it is about taking stock um, and stopping to make sure that everybody in the room has had an opportunity to contribute 
um, particularly those that um, maybe aren't as extroverted um, or wouldn't necessarily be the first to put their hands up or the first person to jump into a conversation, but making sure that there is time for everybody in the room to actually contribute to a conversation. Um, and as Moira said, look at um, for larger conversations, the question about who might be missing from the room. So are there mm. aren't being captured by the group? Because there is always that tendency to do a bit of group think, um, you know, when you've been in a team for a long time, um, that we, we feed off one another. And so sometimes it can be difficult to break that and to get that balance of perspective. So looking at who, who is missing. Uh, so strategies that I've employed is to really, um, if someone's speaking is not to interrupt and if someone interrupts me to stop speaking immediately mm -hmm. of, of, um, of, of, of speaking and, 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 hear, and hearing their perspective. It's also really telling um, as a practice in itself to see how often that actually happens. So when you are in meetings with groups of people, the number of times that individuals do interrupt um, and, and do take over the floor uh, and what that actually tells you about their style of communication. Um, and often it's, it's something that maybe for this group to reflect on when they are in large meetings to sort of get a sense if, if someone does interrupt you, just, just stop um, and see how often they do do that uh, and then what your strategy is around it. But I do think that it is really important if someone is speaking to give them that attention, to stop speaking, to not interrupt. And if you're interrupted, uh, take that and reflect on that, um, but pause, because I think there's nothing worse than people sort of talking over each other and hustling to try and get the last word. Um, so it is, a, it is a delicate balance there. In addition to sort of asking who's missing, I do think that listening also requires um, good questions. There's not always the right questions, but I think that it's one thing to listen and it's another thing to actually engage with what people are saying. And so I think you can do that by ensuring that you do have good questions to ask when it's your time to speak. Mm. Yeah, that's um, a really good point. And sometimes I think a really good question to make sure that the person on the other side feels heard and, and listened to is to ask, like, tell me more, right? To make sure that if they have forgotten anything or there's something in there that they aren't sure about sharing, that you create a safe space when you show that you're open to listen and that you're curious to know more. And especially if someone is coming from a defensive perspective, I think that shows um, that you're keen to learn about the situation or whatever is bothering them. So I found that also to be a very simple yet powerful question. Yeah, tell me more that you show that you're really curious and keen to listen, uh, which is uh, a really important skill. Also, thank you for that. That was uh, really, really interesting. I really like that um, point on having good questions ready to go to make sure that uh, after listening, you can gather all the information extra that you need. The second principle would be empathy, which is such a broad principle, right? To, to define and to try to tackle in five, 10 minutes. Um, but I think you would agree that any good leader has to show that empathy and practice that empathy on a um, daily basis, but also empathy is a tricky concept and um, it has to be tailored in a way to each specific person. Uh, and I, I, I was very curious, particularly knowing that you both have um, managed and, and lead large teams. How, how do you do this and how you em 
empathize with your team members, with the team as a unit in general, without that burning you out in a way, because it's a tricky balance sometimes if you empathize too much, maybe um, it, it gets to you a little bit too much or you lose perspective of, of, some, uh, of some situations. So I wanted to ask you about the balance between empathizing, but also keeping your boundaries in place. And how would you do that when you have large teams uh, to manage? And maybe we'll go with uh, Jessica first this time. Thanks, Gaetana. Yeah, um, it's, it is an interesting, and it's, it's not always an easy one, particularly as teams grow larger, um, in so far as making sure that, um, that you do have opportunity to, to get to know everybody in the team. But it's incredibly important that, um, from my perspective, that anyone in the team, irrespective of their position, irrespective of their level, feels that they, they can come and, come and speak to me. So, um, you know, it sort of sounds a little old fashioned and cliche maybe, but this sort of notion of the open door policy, whereby it doesn't matter whether you are one of my direct reports or whether, um, you know, that, that you're, you know, many sort of report layers down that always here um, and always really keen for people to contribute their ideas, um, to share if there are concerns, because I think uh, that's how you get a, a really clear measure of what's actually happening within the culture of your team. Mm -hmm. um, if within the management group, there's often sort of an expectation that they will know what's happening um, because of the communications, but it doesn't necessarily always flow down. And so I like to make sure that I go and, um, and you know this, that I actually see people in their offices. We're, we're quite lucky that we have um, now in the same kind of broader open plan office. So just going in and saying good morning, asking how people are, um, really important to get to know what, who they are, what their family looks like. I mean, that's really important to me, what their hobbies and interests are outside of the workplace. Um, because often, you know, we talk a little bit about this in terms of the, the concept, but understanding what drives people can help with um, how you motivate people towards a shared mm team as well. So if people have particular interests outside of the workplace, understanding those um, and being able to look at, you know, whether there might be alignment then in terms of um, broader business opportunities is really important as well. But I think that it is about taking the time uh, to get to know people, you know, knowing everybody's names, knowing everybody's roles, um, individual communications as well as regular group communications. Again, not, not assuming that all uh, if all information will flow to individuals equally. So making sure that you do check, check base and, and touch, ensure that people do feel like they're getting the right communication, that they've got the information that they need to be able to do their job. Trying mm -hmm. to know people from a personal and from a professional sense. And this is why I think it will be really good to hear Moira's view on this, because I have seen her do this so well in so far as um, where we've been on, uh, on boards together an understanding of not only engaging and getting to know um, other directors on the board, but understanding management and understanding um, the stress points, um, as well as um, getting to know the individual people uh, within the management group of a company has also been a strength. So it would be good to see what Moira's views are and how she's done that in the past. Awesome. And yeah, over to you, Moira, straight away. <laughs> 
Yes, I'm just recognising your um, exercising your leadership in this conversation. <laughs> I um, thank you. I was going to. Uh, I agree with everything that Jessica said, and I just want to perhaps add another layer to this, and that's at the systems level. Like we can be really empathetic um, to individuals, but I don't want us to forget that the we're operating often in some really challenging systems, and. Um, so my first real understanding or language around empathy was like in high school when I read To Kill a Mockingbird. And there's and some of your students here or past students may well be familiar with that text. Um, but there's a line in it where the, the, the main character, Atticus Finch, he's been challenged by um, about racism and uh, and being asked by one of the younger characters, Scout, you know, what, how do you know, like, what this is all about, this racism? And he says, um, he really gives a definition of empathy, which is, you know, climbing to, you know, what I'm trying to do is climb into his skin and walk around. And I've always loved that as a, a definition for empathy, because it also points out that a lot of the things that happen to us, um, happen not because uh, people aren't empathetic to us but because the systems are not empathetic to us so you know we've had so often, you know in most recent times you know the me too movement and uh, black lives matter are really good examples of systemic uh, problems of um, sexism and racism which have meant while we can be empathetic to those people who are affected by those systems issues that also requires us who are not affected by those to understand our own privilege and work out how we can um, you know, bring some empathy to the system as well. And so when Jess was talking about, um, <laughs> I'm pleased she's observed some of my skills <laughs> around management and decision-making between management and government, governance, is that that is about understanding what the system is capable of too and where we might be able to get the system to be more empathetic. So whether in, in the areas that I'm interested in applying a gender lens, that's often been around um, making sure that our pay rates are better reflected or offering more time um, for carers leave. And those sorts of things are actually the way leaders can um, work within the system to demonstrate their empathy. Uh, in my own work in, um, sort of community engagement and as a social worker, that's, you know, and also supporting legislation. How do we get those things to actually be fairer to everyone so that um, individuals are not the victims of things, but are able to have the agency over the way they want to execute themselves in the world. And so when, you know, you can be as empathetic as you like to a young mum, and we've all experienced this during COVID, who's having to work at home, with you know three kids or whatever, or perhaps because everyone is at home exposed to more domestic violence, uh, we can be empathetic, but that doesn't necessarily mean things are going to be better, and um, because there's some systems problems there. And I think in leadership we have to understand um, that we can put a walk around in other people's shoes. We may not be able to fix everything, but we do have a responsibility to look for how the system can be more supportive. Um, and more enabling so that there's a bit more fairness for everyone. So that's the um, kind of thing I'm thinking of. And um, 
there's a, actually a Shio venture uh, from the from Canada or the US, I can't remember now, called 21 Toys, which is using um, creating empathy dolls and actually how you can use decision making both in the boardroom and in communities and in classrooms to teach empathy as a skill set. And we're living in a world where empathy in leadership is in short supply in some of the countries that uh, we know around the world. And, and yet when you can contrast that to um, leaders that are very empathetic, and I instantly think of Jacinda Ardern and you know, seeing her face when she um, you know, put a scarf on to deal with the, the tragedy in, and um, you know, the mosque and all of the things that she then, she physically demonstrated what it meant to be empathetic as a leader and challenge the system at the same time. And I think that's really good quality leaders. That's what they're trying to do. Um, another example from Jacinda Ardern was she gave one of her press conferences from inside a cardboard fort that her child had made. And I just, and she's sitting on the floor in her track pants and, and giving a national address from that place. And I just thought it demonstrated that she was saying by her physical demeanor and choices of backdrop and her props that I'm with you. So it was an act of solidarity. Um, and so leaders can often um, demonstrate their empathy in that way, you know, bringing their kids to work or um, making sure that, you know, um, when it's grandparents day that ever, all the grandparents can um, have a, a half an hour off to go visit their kids' school as well. So. I think that empathy in leadership has, um, you know, you have to demonstrate the systems piece as well to demonstrate your seriousness about how you know how to use that skill and also how you understand it systemically as well. Yeah, that's such a great point because sometimes when we talk about leadership, uh, it's very easy to get caught up in this small structure like you and your team and it's very easy to miss out the big picture, what are the systems in place and what are the, um, the oppressions that can be in place that don't allow your team to to reach their full capacities. I think it's wonderful that you uh, highlighted that. And that's actually a beautiful segue into the third point that is about healing and how you help a team to heal or a team member to heal, particularly when um, they are coming maybe from a different um, environment or work environment or from a different position, uh, would they be maybe felt I don't know, rejected or harmed in some way, or where they just couldn't find their place or couldn't, couldn't feel supported. And I think that would be an interesting question for you both, as you both mentioned that you've been working uh, in, different, in different work environments. But I was particularly thinking um, about Jessica's career and how you've been part of different restructures throughout your career. And I think that's such a vulnerable position for team members to be in and I would like to know what strategies did you put in place to make sure that when team members are coming together from a situation that could have been a little traumatic or, or, or a little bit just difficult how, how do you support them in, in healing and in, in feeling that I can that I can succeed this time around yeah no it's um I think large and small organizations one thing fairly constant is change um, and change often um, results or is on the back of reorganizations and restructures and certainly within the higher education context universities do reorganize themselves 
fairly regularly. Uh, and I suspect that that's not going to change anytime in the near future, given some of the complexities that we're seeing at the moment. Um, but I have in a number of positions, um, not, sometimes I wonder what it is about my personality that finds myself into roles where I'm taking over a leadership position of a group that's just been reorganised or just been reviewed or just been restructured. But it's happened three times um, uh, while I've been at UQ. And then in addition to that, um, within uh, the roles that I've had, I've had different groups that are brought into uh, an existing kind of team structure. Uh, so it is it isn't always easy um, because cultural alignment isn't um, a given. And so if you've had um, groups, even within the same organisation, there are hundreds of different workplace cultures uh, that, that are established. Um, and so often it's, that is a tricky one to get right uh, and a tricky one to build. So if you've had a, a group that ha where there has been reviews or restructured, often that there can be a feeling of vulnerability in so far as that change has occurred and it, it might have been change that they weren't anticipating or hadn't desired. And so the first thing is, is to, to appreciate that they've come from that space in so far as that that, that can be quite, quite traumatic. Um, they may have lost colleagues in that process. They might have found themselves under a, a new leadership model, which, which means that they're, they're feeling more vulnerable around um, their role or, or understanding about their roles and responsibilities. So I think really listening, this goes back to listening and empathy, obviously these all flow in. So really understanding the context where, um, from where the team has come from. Um, then, then I do really think that there is an, a great opportunity to bring the groups together um, through a process around shared values understanding what the broad mission of the new group is going to be and so far so it's not what was the old um, this, as soon as you have new members join that that changes the dynamic often that will mean that there is a, a need to review the vision or review the mission for the, the team but definitely look at the values uh, so um, going through an exercise where you do look at what the, the values for the, the broader office or team are going to be and then a, a process around shared planning, shared um, where that there's an opportunity to contribute to what the future looks like, what the future priorities are going to be and how the groups will work together. And that takes that whole sort of storming and norming, storming and norming process takes some time and energy um, because there will be very different perspectives that you need to bring together. So the more that you can have um, existing team members working with new team members to understand what a day in the life looks like so that they can appreciate one another's work, bringing people together so that they can creatively collaborate and look at where they are from the two pieces, you can create something really new and exciting that otherwise wouldn't have existed. I think that that um, can help to uh, can help to cement um, people and give them a sense of belonging within a new team structure. Uh, but it but it does does definitely take time. Um, so with changes and mergers, not rushing things, making sure that everybody has an opportunity to contribute, understand that you need to be able to talk through what's happened in the past and, and what's worked well and what hasn't worked well, but then together actually set a course for a shared future um, so that you can then actually build a strong cohesive culture where people are working towards those shared values and those shared goals. I'd say that's, that's sort of the strategies that I've employed in the past. 
Awesome, that's um, really valuable. And I think it's uh, it kind of uh, aligns with what you said before about this open door policy as well, right? That idea that they always welcome to share their concerns and uh, whatever bothers them, while at the same time there is that positivity and that new energy of building something new together. So I, I found that balance really interesting. And what would be your thoughts on, on this, Moira? And what have been your experiences in helping uh, teams and organizations to grow together and heal? Yeah, I, I really um, echo what Jess just said, particularly in mergers and when new teams are being formed. So I won't go into that, but I'll pick up two other points. And I think it's the entry and the exit. So how people arrive and how people leave. And um, so when people arrive, um, I've, I'm a really big one on ritual, um, whether it's arriving to a meeting and leaving a meeting or who's arriving into a team or a business or a country. What it, you know, there's a lot of ritual. When you think about travel, those of us who can still mm. remember how to do that. You know, <laughs> when you're crossing a border, there's a lot that goes on. You work out what you need to pack, you check the weather, you get your passport, you know you're going to have to go through a few, you know, doors. And I always use that as a bit of a metaphor to think about how people are arriving. Um, sometimes people turn up without the right equipment or they've left something valuable behind that they really thought they needed to bring. So just really helping people arrive is and doing the welcome well is a very important part of healing, actually, because if they have left somewhere that's been particularly difficult or toxic, and you have a responsibility in your leadership to uh, create that arrival at, in as a safe way as possible. Mm -hmm. And then at the other end is the exit, you know, making sure that you help people leave well. And that's um, a return. And um, what do you say thank? What are you grateful for? What are the things that you've learned while you're here? What has everyone else learned from you? Um, so I think that that also helps people move forward in their careers and in their um, community. Because again, we don't just come to work as a worker. We, we come as whole people with other things going on in our lives. Um, so definitely having some ritual around that. And, and making sure that things don't happen uh, in, uh, you know, like in a dramatic way, but just building in good, you know, good review of the So uh, one of the things that we do in a, uh, in a couple of the businesses that I'm involved in, every week we identify what do we want to share and what do we want to do. And just doing that often helps us recognise where perhaps there's been some discomfort or where, so just try to pick things very early in the piece before they get too Um and, and another group I'm with, we do hits and misses every week. Mm. So there's no blame. It's just a normal thing. You know? So that also starts to help uh, have them. And I think this is particularly true in an entrepreneurial environment. Um, you know, you can really start to say, okay, what are we, how are we doing? We, nothing has to be perfect. We're giving it our best shot. If we come at as a, as a learner, then I think that really helps us. Mm. 
Yeah, that's so important. And when, one thing that came to mind when you were talking uh, is this beautiful podcast. And we at Leadhurst are very enthusiastic about podcasts and recommend podcasts to each other pretty much every week. But there is one uh, that I think I haven't mentioned just yet called Housework by Esther Perel. She is a, a psychiatrist in, in based in the US and she talks about this idea that everybody comes to work with their own diary and with their own journey right particularly when people come from different countries and different cultures and um, but also from their own family backgrounds and how they understand conflict and communication and all those things that seem so intimate and so personal but that really reflect on how we work together and and how we deal with um, conflict and difficult situations at work. So it's a wonderful podcast. I, I make sure I'll link it up on, on, on the chat if you want to check it out. And she, she really unpacks that uh, kind of difficult dynamics or complex dynamics that happen at work when you have a multitude of team members. So I thought that was, um, that could be a good resource to complement what we were talking about. So we are moving now to the, um, the next set of three principles and um, if, if that's okay I may pay a couple so we can cover two as we go. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot to say about all of them uh, but I think um, that will be a better use of uh, the rest of the session and the principle four and principle uh, five are about um, self-awareness and persuasion. I think we talk about self-awareness quite a bit already in the other three but I, I'd like you to to touch on it if, if you can, but also if, if we can kind of focus on how you use the power of persuasion to build consensus and to and to kind of get the buy-in from your team members to get things done or to go through a restructure or to uh, get to agree on a strategy while at the same time uh, you are aware of of where you are as a leader as a person and you're also aware of how of the social environment so i may i may ask you moira now to go first um and if you can touch on those two principles sure i have a big advantage because i'm a trained social worker and so um you know self-awareness is just part of how we learn our practice mm. how we have a reflective practice that's actually part of the professional behavior so i think that that everyone should do that um i think reflective practice is absolutely essential you know what worked well what didn't work well taking the time i don't think it's a luxury i think it actually is critical for any kind of leadership but particularly if you're trying to have be a servant leader and in doing that and this links to the persuasion bit working out you know what can you leverage um you know what are the levers you can push and pull that will support you in um your own strengths and weaknesses and also in the strengths and weaknesses of the team and in the system and sometimes that's not you that means that you might need someone you might need to outsource your persuasion to someone else or a, a technique that i often talk about um is the as a writer, you know, you show not tell. So you, you, your persuasion doesn't have to always be in words. There's other ways you can make visible what needs to happen, or you can create the conditions to enable the preferred or the optimum outcome without you having to make a big statement and a big argument about it. 
Um, I always um, give, a, give an example of when I was in a, in a political context where I had spent a long time talking to all of the stakeholders um, involved and then um, the minister I was working with, we had a very big, uh, it was a political meeting and she had to present her case and she was very anxious about it and she said, you know, this is going to be really hard and difficult and, and I had done all this work behind the scenes. I'd met with all of the stakeholders individually. I'd listened to all their concerns. I basically used all the levers that were available to me to mitigate their anxieties or to enable them, uh, their concerns to be resolved. And so by the time she was actually up at the podium presenting um, her petition for what she wanted changed, it went through in about two minutes. It was just, there was no dissent, there was no argument. We got back into the car and her driver looked at me in the mirror and said, everything all right? I go, yeah, because she knew I was anxious about it. The minister got it, went in and said, I don't know why you were worried about that. It went so well. And I thought, yeah, only because I had been working nonstop for the last month going through all of the different things. So that's an example of persuasion that didn't look like it was going to be a big debate on the floor of a political um, party convention. So I think often in leadership, that I was definitely exercising my leadership in the role that I had, within the role that I had, and using all the levers that were available to me, um, and having good awareness about what ones I could push and what ones I could pull. So that's my kind of little story I'm bringing these two things together. What one have you got, Jess? Uh, yeah, I think that's a really, really good example and probably sort of similar in so far as um, that it's very difficult in a large organisation to get anything to, to make the decisions on your own in so far as to get anything through on your own. So you do need to, um, it is about collaborating, consulting, listening, getting people's buy-in along the way. So for any of the significant strategies or projects that um, I've um, had to lead, I've always looked to ensure that you were getting people's buy-in along the way. So not creating it and then going, here you go, um, because the chances of that being a success are fairly small in our environment, but rather as you're building it, making sure that you're getting lots and lots of feedback from anybody who the pro and or you know even those that might sit outside of it but making sure you get as many voices as possible listen be as data driven and evidence-based as possibly you can but make sure that everybody's had an opportunity uh, to to contribute to, to give their feedback on it because then when it does actually have to go up for decision and endorsement you will have already won some fans and friends along the way that can help you drive it through um, I think that's, that that really is the way, um, and that's within your own team, but importantly beyond your team. So it's about sometimes knowing exactly who, where the blocks are going to be and really targeting those and getting an understanding about what is what are their pressure points, what would they like to see from this initiative and really truly understanding those as you build um, along the way. So that would be my, so similar to your example, is that it, it, it is about... Um, consultation, making sure that there's open communication, understanding people, understanding something from somebody else's perspective and how what you're going to do is going to make their life easier um, and is getting as many diverse perspectives in as possible. In terms of self-awareness, I think that um, that's really important and it feeds into this process as well. So 
when when developing a new program or looking to to deliver a project um, looking at what's gone well what hasn't gone well are there different approaches that you could take as a leader that might have got you a, a different outcome that, that might have been more positive um, there are goods and bads i mean we're all human we all we all need to continue to learn no one's perfect and i think being able to reflect on the way in which you've approached things taking the goods from that but also acknowledging where there might have been a different approach and that's certainly something that i have learned in terms of getting initiatives off the ground is that you can have all of the energy and enthusiasm in the world but unless you've brought people with you it's not going anywhere because nobody can do it alone and so making sure that you, that you do take that time to actually reflect and that your style is appropriate and targeted to the individuals that you have to engage with. Mm. That's so interesting and I think particularly relevant in the concept of higher education where you have to deal with so many stakeholders that are so different, right? So uh, you'd really need to tune in every time to what they want, but also what would be the uh, best style to communicate with them. And something that you said that really struck me, and I think it's really important, and sometimes we don't pay that much attention to it, is that when we talk about persuasion, it seems like that type of skill that is all about passion and charisma, and that you kind of have to bring people with you and your journey because you're such an amazing leader that nobody can resist you. <laughs> and, and you actually brought up the importance of having both, kind of that kind of um, qualitative approach and being able to bring the energy and the passion and, and the enthusiasm and hearing everybody's voices, but also that quantitative uh, data-driven approach where you show the facts and you are able to present a data-driven scenario. So um, to make sure that people with different styles <laughs> agree with you because some some people could be very tuned into um, leadership styles and personalities but some of them just want to see the facts and and would only agree if the facts convince them so i think it's very important what you said to, to present both and to have a persuasive style that brings both quantitative and kind of qualitative uh, approaches to it um, and I would like to uh, maybe shifting gears here a little bit and moving into principle six, um, because Moira talked about these rituals before and, and the importance of celebrating moments. And you presented this beautiful metaphor of joining a team is like uh, arriving to an airport that actually made me feel a little bit nostalgic. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I was wondering if, because for me, that was such a beautiful way to conceptualize something that is complex. And I was wondering if, if that's type, uh, part of your conceptualization style of the way that you present complex things to the team, if you use metaphors or what other style do you use to make sure that these things that can be complex and sometimes dry or unattractive are easy to understand, especially to a, to a large group of people. What would be your strategies on, on that area? Yeah, I'm definitely a metaphor person. Um, I do a lot of that. And um, I'm also a really big fan of using an art, and like a song or a poem or a painting. And, and sometimes, the, you know, we, they can convey, my photographs can convey a lot more uh, than, uh, you know, a, a really good speech. Although I've spent most of my life writing speeches and making them. Um, I do think there's a huge value in 
being able to, um, if you want to transform something, you often have to transcend the experience so people do get the experience. And, um, and if it's just only in the brain, you're going to miss everybody. If it's just the head, you know, we are head, heart and gut. And so we have to have fun, find ways of bringing those things together. And um, that's why I'm a really big fan of ritual. And sometimes there's fabulous people in your organisations who really do know about this. Anyone who's played in a sporting team or sung in a choir or played in a band, all of those things, um, do, people do know what it means to be in a team and make something beautiful together. So I'm always looking for that sort of thing as a way of helping. And we know, and I know many people here on this call are you know, in the entrepreneurial space, and when you're trying to do a pitch to a potential funder or trying to pitch your work to bring new members into your team, you have to be able to explain, oh, it's like Uber, or it, this is an Airbnb version of whatever this is, or the full stack looks like all these elements. And um, you do, I think, as a community, part of your communication style in leadership is being able to translate and transcend what, what it is conceptually so that everyone understands what it's about. Um, and sometimes that means you need to build different sorts of literacy in a team um, or in a leadership, enable other literacies to become visible. So I, um, I've just popped into the chat actually a book by David White, who is one of my favourite living poets and philosophers. Um, so he's a Yorkshireman, Irish mum, Yorkshire dad. He lives in um, Puget Sound in Seattle, uh, in sort of the state of Washington. And um, he has got one of the books that he wrote some years ago called Crossing the Sea. It's bringing together like the three, and another one called The Three Marriages, which is yourself, your work, and your own home life. And I think that um, if, you're, if you can conceptualise um, something in a way that's very easily translatable, that's really helpful. And one of the challenges I think working cross-culturally or if we're not from the dominant culture when we're in that space is how do we do that? And that sometimes means we need to introduce a new narrative, a new story of something or use one from our own tradition that, that is um, accessible. People do love story and, and story is the most powerful way to bring a concept to life. So I really encourage people to, to do that as well. Awesome. Yeah, Jess, any thoughts on that? I think, look, I think more has covered it. I think it is about um, creating a shared language, um, particularly, again, when you've got people coming from different parts of the organisation coming together. There's a lot of um, jargon and acronyms and specific languages, that, that language that we will use um, that might not be familiar to everybody. And so it is about um, being able to unpack that and be able to present things in a way that everybody will be able to understand. And again, that, that takes some time. Um, but again, good planning, good um, good communication across the group. So there is that shared understanding and how you can make complex matters. Yep. <laughs> Awesome. Um, let's move on then to the last four principles. And again, I think we can um, we can do a little bit of combining here as well. And as you can see, principles six uh, about um, 
conceptualization principles seven and eight kind of on the same boat of this idea of the leader having to um, take responsibility for, together with the team how the future looks like and I would like to ask you maybe we go with you Jessica first about how, how you how you find that balance between making sure that everybody is included and all the voices are heard and um, that everybody feels part of that future journey with um, taking and being the person accountable for, for getting them there? Yeah, look, the buck stops somewhere. And that's one of the things so far is recognising that you are paid to do a role. And if you're the leader of that team, then that responsibility sits with you. And so there are times when tough decisions need to be made um, and that's what you're paid to do. And I think that it's really important um, to be transparent and consistent, but when tough decisions and tough choices need to be made, that as the leader, that you make those. Um, and that's something that I feel very strongly about. I've never shied away from having the hard conversations and having to make tough decisions around resourcing, around priorities, around um, planning, around performance management, because I think um, that would undermine your position um, and your credibility as a leader. And so you have to be able to do that. So I think, you know, in terms of that foresight, it is about, um, learning from the past so things that have worked uh, once you've you've done something once you reflect on that so again all of these sort of contribute into all, all part of the same package but it's being able to reflect on what's worked well what hasn't worked well what the approach was could there have been improvements made what you've learned from a process a consultation process or a planning process or a strategy development process and how that can be applied um, and then as I said in that decision-making process, making sure that you've heard the voices, you've gathered the relevant data and information, and then you're really consistent. So that even if people don't agree with your decision, um, they respect it because they can understand the process that you've undertaken to get to that position. Because it's very difficult to get 100% consensus all of the time. Um, so the best that you can do is to take a measured approach and be then consistent and transparent about the way in which you've actually um, yeah, gone about making those decisions. Yeah, that makes sense. And could I ask you before uh, we pass the baton to Moira, um, if you could share an example on how have you, how did you lead by example doing that? Uh, can there's any situation come to mind where you yeah, had yeah. to actually do it yourself for, for the team to follow you now yeah. in the past? I'm really, I really believe, and I know that people, a lot of people say this, but I honestly believe that I, I would never ask somebody to do something that I wouldn't do myself. And that's from very, very simple things. So for example, in our area, we, in a normal year, have hundreds of delegations that come to campus from all over the world and often we give them small tokens of small gifts and those gifts need to be wrapped and it might seem like a simple thing but it's actually a really kind of painful and laborious process of like wrapping these pens and wrapping these ties and so you know one of the one of the things that we did was we just had a wrapping day and um, invited anyone who had a bit of spare time to come and sit down and, and wrap these gifts and and i did it i sat there and i wrapped these gifts 
Um, and same way that I have, you know, done name tags for conferences or been the person who's cleaned up after the catering. I, I would never do, I would never ask somebody something to do something that I wouldn't be prepared to do myself. Um, and that has gone to really tricky strategic decisions as well. So um, last year we had to do a restructure of um, our broad portfolio and um, because we had brought teams together and there was the desire to bring another team into the portfolio. And so that meant taking a look at the leadership roles that we had within the, within the group because we were too top heavy um, and there wasn't really clear definition around roles and responsibilities. There's too much duplication. And so we did need to make some decisions to, to streamline the management structure. And so as a part of that, um, there were uh, some new positions that were created and there were also some positions that were going to be disestablished. Um, and so in that process, um, a new position was created, which was this Pro Vice Chancellor role. But in doing that, the position that I held, which was a director's role, was this disestablished. Um, and so in the same way that um, team members had to apply for new positions or make decisions around applying for new positions, so did I. Uh, so I had to go through that same process. If the position had been successful, I would have been knocking on someone's door and looking for another job. But it was important because we needed to be consistent around the way with which we were going to approach the development of this new leadership team and the hiring into this leadership team. Now, look, obviously I had some good advantages because I had been in a similar role. And so I had lots of good examples when it came to interview, but nothing was a given. And I stood there and I rolled out that change process knowing that my job was just as much on the line as anybody else's was, in fact, more so. Um, and I thought that, and I thought that was really important because again, if you're going to make change, make sure that anything that you expect others to do, that you would be prepared to do yourself. Yeah, that's uh, such an important lesson, and it's, I, I assume easier said than done, right? When <laughs> when you have to do it, and when your job is on the line, or when you have to apply, uh, it is it must be very hard. But uh, as you were saying, is what you are asking others to do. So it's it's a really good example of good leadership. Um, Moira, what about you? What would be your examples about foresight as a leader, but also as that kind of leading by example? type of leadership. Great example, Jess. Um, really, really fabulous. A couple of things I would add, uh, that, and, and Jessica mentioned it as well, is this radical transparency is what I would call it, so that you're absolutely um, relentless and faithful to um, what's, what's visible and what's invisible. And there are sometimes, one of the things I've always do, have done in, and will do in leadership, where I've got carriage of, you know, the buck stopping with me, is that I always say very clearly up front what's negotiable and what's not negotiable. And because sometimes things are non-negotiable, you know, like there's a bottom line that you have to meet in terms of a financial target, or maybe there's a legal barrier that you have to, you have no choice about, you have to, you have to meet. So I think being having radical transparency, clarity about what's negotiable, what's non-negotiable. And then um, the foresight elements in that for me is having different sorts of planning tools. So I'm a big fan of um, scenario planning, like there's more than one way to get there and actually running the scenarios through properly um, with proper lenses on them. And then, um, you know, using a participatory futures kind of uh, methodology as well. 
So everyone's involved in thinking through what the potential futures might be, which is a bit different to scenario planning. But it, um, and that builds a whole lot more engagement into the process. Um, if people know what the boundaries are. And then the third ingredient for me is making sure you're building um, really good monitoring and evaluation all the way through anyway, from the beginning, because then you've got that data when, that, when the decision points come. You can see where they, you know, what's worked and what hasn't worked and why, um, where the accountabilities are. And sometimes if you can do that, you can course correct earlier on before there's something major that you need to do. That, and that often requires um, very good leadership, you know, whether it's on a board or if you're a director or in a leadership of leading a team. Um, and so having, like foresight to me is not just planning, it's also imagination. And that's one of the things that I think is really missing a lot is that foresight ends up being um, a clinical task. And in fact, imagination is one of the great gifts that really good leaders bring, either through their own imagination or enabling that and different imaginings to come from the group. Because there are, there's always more than one way to do something. And we often get into very binary situations. It's either A or B, you know, A, B testing becomes a, a norm. When in fact, you know, there's, hundreds of ways of getting to the same destination. Yeah, that's such a beautiful thing you just said, and it kind of reminded me of that beautiful quote by uh, Dr. Luther King Jr., I think is the one that said that, that dreaming is a form of planning. And I think that sometimes you have to allow your team to dream and think way bigger and way outside the box to create those scenarios and to get to, um, places that are more um, interesting or more profitable or, or more doable. So, but it's, it's important not to forget that it's not all black and white or uh, one or zero, that actually there are many, many, many options. And you have to, as a leader, I guess, allow them to explore and even go to places that can sound a little crazy or a little bit too edgy. So I, I really love that. Um, and the last two principles I would like to bring together is uh, principle nine, commitment to the team's growth. And you touched a little bit on it when you talk about evaluation and feedback and metrics, how you make sure um, that you actually have good data to to evaluate your team and for the team to feel that they have been evaluated on a fair basis and there are actually some metrics for them to know what means to perform um, fairly and then the last principle that is about building community and how you make sure um, and just touched on that a little bit that you build community across teams especially if they're from different functions or if they came from different places uh, different departments and I want also to ask you to touch on how you do that community building when we're working remotely and when all the beautiful challenges COVID is <laughs> bringing into our lives these days um, so Jessica would you like to go first with this last set commitment to the team's growth and building community? Yeah, sure thing. So, look, I think that there are lots of um, standards of institutional review, um, performance and recognition. And I think that the most important thing is not to just rely on those. I mean, there are obviously the, the boxes that need to be ticked in terms of annual appraisals and performance. But I think that it's about 
regular check-ins um, and that, that, that has to um, permeate across all levels of the organisation, all levels of the uh, so that you've got a uh, leader leading by example and, and making sure that understands what the, the, the drivers, what the skill sets are, what the gaps are, but also empowering the managers that sit below them and then the individual team members to be able to take a, a proactive role in actually identifying what the needs are in terms of development and also fostering a culture whereby people are able to take new projects and to be able to grow. So I think it is, it's, it's frequent conversations. Um, some of those are formal and some of those are informal. I think sometimes the informal ones are more valuable. You actually detail, but have a structure in place within the team where there are regular checks around what the KPIs are, what the success indicators should be and what they do look like and then planning accordingly around that. I think we also need to be really creative around the ways with which we support professional development. Um, I think gone are the days where organisations have large budgets, if they ever did, large budgets to pay for external training and um, ex external um, PD types of work. So a lot of that I think we need to do internally and so that can be made through, um, done by yeah, providing opportunities to contribute to a new project, opportunities to work with different teams within the larger office environment um, beyond that. So even secondments to other areas. And so I think good leaders need to be creative around the ways with which they identify the tools and mechanisms for their individual teams to grow. Um, it's, I also think it's really important to, to look and to see uh, how succession planning is managed within uh, the groups. So making sure that you are providing opportunities for people to act up, um, not in, act up in a naughty way, although that's always encouraged in our environment as well, but to be able to take on that next step in terms of management responsibility. So if and when the time comes, they're able to take on those management roles within your own office or be in a position to, to go and to work um, at that level in another portfolio or another area. Uh, so I think that's a really important element of, um, of leadership as well as to be able to identify where there is talent, help people to achieve their career goals and give them steps along the way to achieve those. In terms of building community, um, the, there's never enough communication, in my opinion, there's never enough um, informal gatherings. Um, it is harder um, with, with COVID insofar as, you know, some of those uh, standard kind of monthly morning teas where people would be able to just come together informally to celebrate birthdays or to celebrate achievements. Those take a bit more effort, but th that effort is, is really pays off in my opinion. So the Zoom full coffee meetings where people can show their cats and their children, those are really important. Um, within our own group, we've um, brought in uh, some trivia days. We had teams working remotely. And so we held it over two different weeks. So those that were in the office were able to come and we had it an outdoor space so that people could breathe and have space, but we could still come together as a group. Um, I really encourage other team members to take a role in this. So we're quite lucky within Global Engagement Entrepreneurship that there are some people who really love organising social activities. So we've got an Oktoberfest lunch coming up on Wednesday and I can't wait to see some of them dress up because it'll be hilarious. So the thing is, it's not just on you. Um, you want to create a culture whereby people want to do that and they will want to take ownership and, and organise these events. And so all you need to do is say, yeah, sounds great. And then get out of the way 
and, and make sure that people have that, that it can happen. But to do that, you need to create the culture. And so that's about having the right conversations, creating the right team environment, bringing in the right people, um, and then letting those people get on to do what they do best. And you can stand and endorse it, but for the most part, you get to just kind of step out of the way and let, let them get on with it. But I really think that the more opportunities there are to get to know one another um, within our own teams, but also outside of our portfolio. So um, whether that's through written email communications or face-to-face um, -face events or you know, interactive trivia types of things that can be done online. But the more of that, the better it is because we are all people. Um, and this is in particular has been an, an incredibly challenging year. And I think that people have been stretched in ways that they wouldn't necessarily have imagined. And so if we just remember the fact that we are all people and that every now and then you just need a laugh, you just need to have some fun. It's okay to drop tools every now and again. Um, because in the grand scheme of things that, you know, I find that strong teams always achieve. And so you need to stop and you need to give them a chance to take a breather and to really enjoy and to celebrate those milestones because we're too quick to move from one thing to the next to the next. Anyway, those are just some of my ideas. I'm sure that Moira will have a lot more. Thank you, Jess. I, um, I, I agree with everything and definitely celebrating. I think we do move on too quickly. Um, and, you know, little in the olden days when I was at the CEO volunteering SA in Northern Territory, I had a great big basket of uh, musical instruments. And um, wherever, if I travelled, I always would bring home a musical instrument, you know, canaster or, um, you know, a little shaker or a whistle or clapping sticks. And it, anyone, we had about 80 volunteers in every day and anyone could call a musical moment. Anyone was able to do that. And they would just literally yell out, musical moment. And that meant that they had to race to the instruments and they would have to be celebrating something like, you know, the birth of a new child or maybe their grandson got their learner's permit or maybe they just won $5 on the cross lotto or something. It didn't matter what it was. But it was this fabulous equity because it meant anyone could do it. It wasn't relied on the CEO or a team leader or anything like that. Everyone had equal access to the musical basket. So that, I think, fun things like that are really important. Um, play is important and often underestimated as the glue. Like, it really is a lot of glue that goes into an organisation. I had a staff member years ago whose habit was to move all the chairs if we were out of the office, like if there was a fire drill or something. And so you come back into your office and you had, you know, I'm five foot two, I'd have the six foot four guys to chair at my desk thinking, what's wrong? There's something not right here. And he would always be playing jokes. And we would have, in that particular office, we would have five minutes of fun on a Friday. That was it. We would work really hard for the whole week. But on Fridays at five, there was five minutes of fun. And we took it in turns to be on the roster. And you have no idea the kind of things people organised for five minutes. It was brilliant. Um, so there's all sorts of ways you can do that. I think um, the other thing is not everyone's an extrovert. And so if you do want to invest in people, PD, you know, professional development learning opportunities may not be for everyone. And people can learn from doing other things. They can learn by going on a hike, you know, like Jess is on the board now for the Kokoda Trail. That's a great team building exercise. You can... Um, support someone to go on a retreat or a reflection day or go for a um, 
you know, some time up for coaching or mentoring. So there's all different ways of doing um, and investing in your team. I think as a leader, your responsibility is understand, you know, you're in a way, the human API, you know, you're going to be the one who's going to work out what's going to be the best plug and play and get those things together. Um, I remember some years ago, uh, I was, it was a 360 uh, performance appraisal of myself. So, and one of the pieces of feedback was that I was like a good winemaker. I knew which bits would, uh, what blends would come together and how long things needed to be aged or when the bottle needed to be popped for some champagne. And I always found that a really lovely, um, and I really appreciated that feedback because it helped me understand um, that not all of the work is mine. Something happens in the bottle as well, but my job's to make sure that it's on the shelf and that it's, you know, getting the right ingredients into it. So I think um, we can build community in our leadership if we understand what our strengths are as well and also what the strengths of the team are. And, you know, historically in human resources, we have often invested in getting people to be better at what they're not in their weaknesses. And I think that's a really bad mistake. Um, I think we should play to our strengths as a team and strengthen what we've got rather than trying to fix up what's not there. Um, and if we're missing something, the team recruit for it. Don't try and turn people into something that they're not. Um, and it's a, that's been a really big shift I've seen in HR over the last 10 years or so, that quite often we have said, oh, this person doesn't know how to do this, so they'll invest, we'll invest, you know, turn them on a training course, give them a new opportunity. That's still never going to be that, that, that's not going to be what they're good at. So instead of doing that, why don't we get the right person to do it? And, and, and make sure that we strengthen what we've actually got, because then they could be extraordinary in that role rather than just being really mediocre in something else. So yeah, but building community is the thing I do. And I think we can do it online. Uh, um, we can do it in all sorts of ways. And, and we do have a lot more tools, collaborative tools to support us in that now, but nothing beats the one-on-one -on -one contact. The phone call, the Zoom, the coffee date, whatever it is, that is gold and it is still worth investing in. It will never not be worth investing in. Yep, that's um, that's really valuable. And I would like to steal that metaphor from you of the winemaker. <laughs> it's a beautiful one. And I think it brings back to the point of, as a leader, there are things that you control and many things that you don't. And that beautiful magic that happens inside the bottle, you create the conditions, but then as Jessica was saying before you, at one point you have to step away and trust in the process because you've been part of building that process. So I think it's a, a beautiful metaphor to define leadership. One of my brothers says that that's going to be on my gravestone. She's going to trust the process. <laughs> That's, that's wonderful. Awesome. I would like to open it up now to uh, the floor and thank you again for going through all these 10 points. I know it's quite hard for the body to be sitting down for so long. So I appreciate uh, you've been sitting through it and uh, we'll take now uh, 10, 12 minutes of questions because uh, Moira has to leave uh, 10 minutes before we uh, will wrap up. Um, so we'll can take 10 minutes of questions. So please feel free to connect your microphones and and to type on the chat whatever you prefer.
This is the harder thing on Zoom, I think. This is where we're missing having everybody in a group face-to-face because -face, I think sometimes the question and answer is a little easier when you're actually in person. Yeah, it takes a little bit to warm up, but I'm sure we'll get some questions. <laughs> Katharina, you want to go ahead? I do. Thank you. I do have a question. And um, can you, both of you, either of you, share um, if you've ever had to make difficult decisions of um, laying people off or letting them go for one reason or another and how you dealt with that? Yeah, I'm happy to go first. Yeah, I've done that more than once. <laughs> um, it's, never, it's never fun. That's the first thing. It's never easy. And if you're a good leader, it shouldn't be easy. Um, sometimes, I mean, I've certainly, in, the, in my volunteering SA CEO role, I dismissed two people in my first week, one on my second day. Um, and uh, it was, um, that individual was very unwell and uh, she needed support. She was very angry. And then I saw a few months later and she thanked me for being the first person that really took her, her situation seriously. So um, I was protecting the business, but I still was able to support her. And so her separation enabled her to get the support she needed. Um, and there's many other examples. But I do think that the lesson that I learned from that one is that you, in your leadership, you do need to protect your business or your brand, whatever it is. Uh, but that doesn't mean you can't, you can't be supportive of the individual as well. So you do need to find the balance for that. Um, in terms of big decisions, like in budget environments where you know that you're going to make a decision and 10 or 12 people, or in fact, a whole division might be um, unemployed as a result. Um, again, as I said earlier, radical transparency is always your best inoculation for that. Being really clear about what's coming up. People know, like in COVID, everyone knows it's COVID. You don't have to explain a lot about those realities. Um, but you try and do whatever you can in your power to make it uh, that you're protecting your brand and the business and those people so that they've got the support that they need and doing everything within your own, you know, whatever levers you've got to run. Uh, yeah, just to quickly add to that, yeah, and um, it, yes, also have had um, a number of instances where um, have needed to to make some changes to team structures and, and within different organisations, there are different processes. So for us within higher education, that typically comes about um, either through performance management or through restructures. Uh, my advice is, um, well, is to try it's, it's the, the, the quicker, the earlier that you do this, the better that it is. Um, so I had an instance uh, earlier, uh, I've had an instance whereby uh, brought on a, a new team member that uh, just wasn't able to fulfill the responsibilities of the role that they were hired for. Um, and so rather than uh, prolonging that process, we made a decision not to um, progress past probation. Uh, and so I think that sometimes the challenge is, is that people think, oh, well, we'll wait and we'll see and we'll give them more chances and more chances. But I think that uh, this sort of points to Moira's point before in so far as get the right people for the roles and if people aren't the right fit, frank and open conversations, making sure that you've set, you know, KPIs and they're able to track towards a clear set of, um, of goals. But if they're unable to do that, then, then cutting the cord as quickly as possible, I think, is, is, is the best way of doing things. The other thing I've done, um, Katerina, is um, 
in uh, when I was in the political context and our minister was planning to make a move, um, I spent you know morning, noon and night for about three days making sure everyone had another role to go to. So it just points to the mm. fact that I think in leadership you need to use everything you can do to to support these people because they're people. It's, they're not just widgets in a machine. Um, they've got mortgages, they've got kids, they've got families, responsibilities. They may have, you know, all sorts of things going on in their life and we have to pay attention to that. Thank you. I, I have to, I should have started my question. I uh, was just thanking you for, uh, for your time today. I really enjoyed listening to both of your stories. And uh, I even had a few sort of aha moments <laughs> when I should have known how, um, or I now know that I perhaps didn't act correctly or I sort of made some mental notes <laughs> on what to do in the future. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Katerina. Um, that was a really good question and a tough one. <laughs> so thank you for asking tough questions. Um, Chloe is asking whether it would be okay for you guys to be reachable through LinkedIn. Is, is that okay if I share your LinkedIn profiles with the class so they can link you up? Awesome. Uh, so yes, Chloe, that, that would be okay. Um, any other question? Maybe a last question for the last five minutes? There was a great one on the chat, Kaitana. So I'm oh, really? in, but I don't know if it was, is it Keeper or Keeper? I'm so sorry, I will have just- Keeper. Keeper. Uh, um, just in terms of creating a comfortable atmosphere for one-on-one -on -one chats. And I think you're right. I mean, meetings with my boss, what's the boss uh, or meetings with the vice chancellor thinking oh what's the vice chancellor and so um having the so understanding i guess the context of it. There, there are certain meetings where it's very you know quite structured and so you know that there needs to be a clear agenda around what you need to convey uh there are other times when you actually just want to have a chat and seek advice um, and get some feedback so I think sometimes the venue makes a difference there. So rather than meeting in a formal setting, going and having a coffee, um, if it is a chat in terms of some general, I mean, putting that out there so people know what to expect. Um, if it is more of the meeting style of environment, then going well prepared. There's, there's nothing, I mean, I, I really, people are busy. Um, and so the more prepared you are, sending clear agenda with clear points, being able to go into the meeting, knowing exactly what you need as an outcome, that will save a lot of time and also I think makes you look really, really organized, um, which is, is a good thing to be. But for those sort of more casual ones, pull it for what it is. You know, if you just need to go and have a chat. So, you know, a couple of things that are on my mind, would we be able to grab or go for a walk? Sometimes the outdoor space, I think, can just make it a little less formal and so it can make be but but easier. But we're all human, we all feel that way. I mean, I, I think Maura will say the same thing. We all rock up to meetings where we go, ooh, it's a big important scary person. But, you know, you're there for a reason. You know, you've got something to contribute. You've got something to say. And so own that. And it's okay to have the butterflies. I think that keeps us on our toes and makes us do a better job anyway. Yeah, I'd really agree with all of that. I, I love, I do a lot of those kind of things. In, in, if I'm in a formal leadership role, like being a CEO or chief of staff or something, I regularly would do walking meetings. That's been very common because it's the side by side. And even if I'm in an office environment, I'll get the person to sit alongside of me and then we'll have whatever it is, the document or the whiteboard in front of us. And this comes back to my social work training. That if you are 
facing one another, then the problem is in between you. But if you're face alongside of one another, you're facing the problem together. So orientation is a really very simple way of doing things. So if you are, um, you know, if you can find a way of being alongside of as opposed to being um, face to face, I think that always works well. Even if you're having a coffee, you can sit on the corner rather than directly opposite. Um, it just changes the dynamic a little bit and it's really useful. The other thing that I've done um, when I've felt terrified, which is pretty often I've had those moments, where I've asked a little bit later down the track, you know, to get, give some feedback. How, how did I, what was that okay? How, did, how would you have liked have got that information differently next time? So that makes you vulnerable, but it also makes you look strong and not fearful of um, being ready to learn and ready to grow. Yeah, that's a really good point. And sometimes even admitting right before you're going to talk or present your points like, wow, this Benny is a little bit intimidating or I feel a little bit nervous today. I think that it shows yeah, vulnerability, but also makes people more sympathetic and you see some smiles and some noddings and can, that kind of warms up the environment a little bit. So sometimes I feel that we try too hard to pretend that we don't feel anything and we're in total control and just say, wow, yeah, this venue is scary. <laughs> or something like that uh, uh, with a little bit of sense of humor can can help to to dissolve the tension a little bit um that was beautiful uh, points there and moira you have the best metaphors <laughs> so thank you so much for that uh thank you so much moira and jessica for your invaluable points it's been a wonderful discussion and really interesting to learn more from you. Um, so I know you have to go, so I would like to just to give you an opportunity to say goodbye to the class before you up to the, your next meeting. But on behalf of UQ and leaders, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Katiana, and thanks everyone for listening and your questions. And please reach out if there's something you think of it later on, don't hesitate. And I'll see you soon, Jessica. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much, everyone. As Maurice said, if anyone's got any, there was a couple of questions that we didn't get to. So if anyone has any questions at all, please don't hesitate to get in touch. I do think that we're in this together. Um, and so don't hesitate to reach out if there's something that, you know, you just, just want a bit of a sense check or if something's just niggling, you just want to ask. There's a good chance that um, somebody else will have walked in those shoes a little bit and if they haven't at least they'll walk a mile with you so i think that that's really important but thank you so much thank you for being part of leaders and thank you kayatana for the opportunity to speak to the group really appreciate it thank yeah, you my pleasure thank you so much have a good rest of your day bye thank you so much for listening to our podcast if you want to know more about uq ventures Please follow us on socials at UQ Ventures and on our website ventures.uq.edu.au. Don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to stay up to date on our programs and activities. And if you want to get in touch by email, you can reach us at ventures at uq.edu.au. Thank you for listening.